Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, June 5th, 2022, we continue our series titled Romans, Gospel for All Time. Today's sermon, The Stumbling Stone, will be taught to us by Pastor Joe and Franco out of Romans chapters 9, verse 30 through 10, verse 4. But first, here's a quick recap of last week's sermon. Paul here is not condemning the asking of sincere questions. I don't want you to think that. That's not the case at all. What he is condemning is the spirit that thinks that God, the potter here, somehow has to justify his actions to you and me. See, we need to be careful here not to confuse the mystery of God with a lack of fairness. Because you and I don't understand everything, that doesn't make it bad. The call here, again, is for us to trust in God. Look at his track record. Look at his care and concern that he would create all these different things for us. The beauty of all that that life has to offer, even in the midst of tragedy. The fact that he would offer his son and and let his son son come to this earth and, and go and die on a cross for you and I, the beauty of all that is just absolutely amazing. His track record is perfect. Our God is amazing beyond comprehension. He is gracious beyond belief. He is holy beyond comparison. He has no rival, no equal. He is the lighthouse. The lighthouse is calling you to trust him. Will you? In these verses, the Apostle Paul is wrapping up his teaching on the subject of righteousness. The righteousness that leads to freedom from the consequences of guilt and sin. And he starts by saying that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness had achieved it. And why was that? Because they achieved it by faith. And then by contrast in the next verse, verse 31, Paul says Israel was not, now notice what he says here, Israel was not pursuing righteousness. It was pursuing the law, which they thought would result in righteousness. The picture is something like this, that the Gentiles who hear the gospel and simply believe, walk right by Israel. And Israel, in pursuing a law that they can never achieve, that they can never fully obey, is stuck in place watching the Gentiles go by. So this is point number one today. Righteousness comes by faith and not by works. Now this is a theme, this is a point we've heard numerous times in sermons that we've gone through Romans. I wanna try to bring maybe a, a slightly different view of it today. And remember in the earlier verses, just proceeding in chapter nine, Paul has laid down a few important thoughts. He says, there has always been an Israel within Israel. That is, there were always Jews who were aligned with God's plan and those who were simply Jewish by nationality. And Paul had also said earlier in Romans 9 at verse 25 that it had always been God's plan to bless the Gentiles. He quotes here, I will call them my people who are not my people. And who were the Gentiles, by the way? The Gentiles were anyone who was not a Jew. That means everyone else in the world. 
And God had affirmed this many times through the prophets that his intention was to bless the world and to reach the Gentiles. And now Paul wants to nail down why it is that part of Israel is now standing outside of God's unfolding plan while Gentiles are just kind of walking past them into the fullness of them. First, we have to remember this. In that culture, it was shocking to the Jewish mind to hear that the Gentiles were now getting this treatment. There was a, a lot of prejudice and why it was so shocking a message. Here's an example, and don't read more into this example, anything other than the shock value. Imagine the child of very, very wealthy people, and they have a family relationship, and it's going on, you know, for years, and then the parents are gone one day, and there's the will, and the will leaves everything to a stranger who nobody has ever heard of. The heir would go, what? I mean, there'd be a kind of shock that approaches the shock. There was a rabbinical prayer. I'll leave out part of it. But the end part of it was, Lord, I thank you that you did not make me a dog or a Gentile. And there were different words for dog. And this was the worst possible word of it. To get a clearer picture of this, when the Apostle Paul was in his third missionary journey, he ends up in Jerusalem. He's in the temple. He's seen by people. They, they start beating him to death and Roman soldiers rescue him and carry him away. And Paul says, please, can I speak with them? Well, okay. So Paul motions to the crowd and he begins to speak to them in Hebrew. That's very important. This is, you know, a, 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 the Jewish language and the crowd stops and they listen. And then Paul recounts how when he was still known as Saul on the road to Damascus, there was a brilliant light and Jesus appeared to him. Now, does the crowd go crazy at that? Are they angry that he mentions Jesus? No, there were already many people in that crowd who were Jewish, but who considered Jesus was the Messiah or were at least weighing it. Remember, there were 3000 that first day, the day of Pentecost, who believe, and the Bible says, and they were being added daily to the church. They're not upset at that. Here's when they get upset and look at Acts chapter 22 at verses 21 and 22. And Paul says this, and he <clears throat> being Jesus said to me, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And notice this, up to this word, they listened to him. But when they heard the word Gentiles, they raised their voices. And basically they're screaming out, this man is not fit to live, he should be killed. Where did this reaction come from? Well, there was certainly a tremendous amount of prejudice that they had against the Gentiles. There's prejudice, you know, if we're not careful on how people look or how people act. Are we immune from those prejudices? No, let's never be foolish enough to think that we are. I think back in the 60s and 70s, there was a great move of God among hippies. They were getting saved in California. They were flocking to churches. When they showed up in the churches, their personal hygiene wasn't always very good. They didn't wear shoes, their feet were dirty. And I always remember uh, Pastor Chuck Smith talking about they would come in and some of his, his deacons were really upset. 
And they stopped them and they, they said, you know, get out of here, go put on shoes, come back when you have shoes on. And he was angry beyond words. And he said, well, why did you do that? Well, they were getting the carpet dirty. He said, I don't care if you change the carpet every week, you will never turn a person away from this church. But it's easy for those subtle prejudices, prejudices, pardon me, to start creeping in because of how somebody either looks or acts. Um, see, and to the Jewish mind, fundamentally, Israel believed that they had reached some kind of special place, that by obeying the law, they had built up a kind of credit balance and it kept getting built up. And this was how they were approaching righteousness. Now, this is one of the most common mistakes that people make and that's made by religion. And I'm gonna put religion in quotes there because religion is generally about what do we have to do? What are the rituals and things we need to do and in what order and how do we work our way toward God and please him? Christianity is unique among every faith in the world. It starts with the proposition, there's nothing you can do to reach him. You can't get there on the, your best day with a good tailwind. Christianity says, that's all gone. But God in his infinite person can reach down to you and that's what happened. And yet we're still very programmed, aren't we, towards performance. From the time that we're kids, you do the right thing, you get complimented. You do the wrong thing and there's disapproval. It's everywhere. When we were kids, you know, I remember some people liked Santa Claus. I didn't. I, I thought Santa Claus was like kind of scary. It's like he had these godlike qualities. He knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. Like, what's with that? He knows if you've been bad or good. And I remember like my brothers and I, we always felt like December was kind of like a special month. Like we cut it up and we messed up all year. I'm like, December, you had to be really good because that's when he was watching extra carefully. And we tried to, you know, generally like behave, you know, because we figured the big man is watching. We don't want to, you know, get cut out of here. That kind of thinking, though, filters into our view of religion, even after we come to faith in Christ. There are many religious systems, including some that classify themselves as Christian, and they have set aside rituals for repentance and fasting and things like that. Now, is repentance a bad thing? Is fasting a bad thing? No. The challenge is when the rituals become the thing that you identify with primarily, you start drifting into a view without even realizing it maybe, that it's the ritual and the obedience to it that's obtaining in some way for you that righteousness. And that almost inevitably leads into back into that default balance. I want my good deeds to outweigh my bad deeds. When I would talk to my Jewish friends back in New York on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, I'd ask, what do you do? They would say to me, I, we go in the temple, we confess sins all day, we try to do a lot of good deeds before because we want the good deeds to outweigh the bad deeds. Paul wipes out all that thinking. He blows it up in a moment. And he says, it has always been about faith and not about works. 
And to illustrate the point, he, he puts together a quote here. Now, part of it is from Psalm 118. Sometimes New Testament writers will take parts of the Old Testament and juxtapose, combine them in a way to bring out a greater truth. And so Paul has Psalm 118, but he also quotes here from Isaiah 8, verse 14, and Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. And he says this, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, the title of the message, and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now notice that, catch that. Whoever believes in him, Isaiah had said, will not be put to shame. Conversely, the one who does not believe, there's a large stone that's been placed there. It's like a person walking down a path. There's this big, obvious stone, and they either don't care about it or don't see it, and they're going to trip over it. Which brings us to point two. Jesus is still a stumbling stone to the world. Jesus is still a stumbling stone to the world. And this is true for both Jews and Gentiles. It's true for everybody. There was a recent survey taken of Americans and they were asked this question. Do you believe that Jesus was just a good teacher and nothing more? Over half of people, 52% of Americans said, yes, that's what I believe. He was a good teacher and nothing more. Now that might be concerning enough, but when the question was put to self-described evangelical Christians, almost one third, one in three, agreed with that statement. Jesus is only a good moral teacher and nothing more. Now when people say that Jesus was only a good moral teacher, they actually do a great disservice to that teaching they claim to admire because a central part of Jesus's teaching is that he came from heaven, that in a unique way, he is one with God, his father, and that he's the son of God. And they understood what he meant by son of God when he was being tried in a Jewish court and he was asked, are you the son of God? And he said, yes. They accused him of blasphemy, they tore their clothes. It was a special claim of uniqueness with God. Now. As C.S. Lewis you know, uh, once observed, that great writer and thinker, he said, mental institutions are filled with people who claim to be God. It's actually kind of a common personality. Um, and people who claim to be God generally, not generally, never get looked at as good moral teachers, with one exception. Here you're presented with this singular person, Jesus. You look at the miracles. You look at this unfathomable wisdom that he teaches with that cuts to the heart that just tells us there's something in his teaching that he's unique, that nobody ever spoke like this, people said. And yet here he is claiming to be God also. And Lewis said this presents what he called a trilemma. He said somebody who claims to be God has to be one of three things. There's no other answer. He's either crazy, insane. He said something like, the way a person would be if they claimed to be a poached egg. He said, or number two, they're a liar, something lying right from hell, or number three, 
They really are the Lord, the Lord of all creation. And then Lewis said this, we cannot call him merely a great teacher and nothing more. He did not leave us that option. And that's true. To say that, it just means you don't understand what he taught. I'll share a story that illustrates the point. So years back when I lived in New York, I got invited by a Jewish synagogue to come and speak on why Christians love and support Israel. I was happy to do it. I have great love for the Jewish people. I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood. I, I have some small amount of Jewish heritage as well. And the rabbi explained to me, this was a seekers group. It was a group of, they were highly educated. They had scientists, engineers, and all these professionals. And, and he said, they like somebody to come in and they toy with them. And he said, and they like to carve them up. They like to ask tough questions and see how they do. I think he said something to me like, they don't suffer fools lightly. And nothing was out of bounds for them. Well, naturally, how could I turn down such an invitation? And so... I went there and I started by asking them, do you accept the prophets? The rabbi stood up and he said, yes, but we believe that the prophets did not foretell. We believe they told forth. Now that's a kind of a subtle way of saying they were something like the conscience of the society, but they weren't actually predicting anything. And I said, well, I think that maybe they did both. And there were some physicists there from this um, lab. And I, and I said, look, do you believe that God exists out of, uh, out of time? You know, and one of them said something like, well, yes, he created a relativistic space-time continuum, of course. So there, you know, and I just said, well, okay, see what he said. All right, so God exists outside of time. Therefore, it's no big trick for God to, you know, have this perspective of everything and a prophet to talk about something before it happened. I asked him, do you accept Jeremiah? Well, of course we do. Well, Jeremiah predicted a 70 year captivity and it happened literally. Do you accept Daniel? Well, of course. Well, he read Jeremiah and knew the 70 years were almost up. Do you accept Moses? Oh, Moses, well, well, Moses predicted a worldwide captivity. Then the prophets talked about Israel being regathered from around the world. I went through prophecies with them including this one. And I said, some of you saw this in your lifetime. Isaiah chapter 66, verse eight, Isaiah talking about Israel being regathered and reborn as a nation in a moment. Isaiah put it this way. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in a moment? And he went on to say that as a woman is in labor and a child comes, that was going to happen to Israel. Literally fulfilled. May 14, 1948, after the UN gave permission, Israel declared itself a nation after almost 2,000 years. I went, uh, 2,000 years of, of being out of the land and not being a nation. So I went on to say, look, these prophets, they have a, th this, these prophets also spoke about Moshiach, Messiah. And how much do we Christians owe to the prophets because we have no meaning without the Jewish foundation. So we believe that there's a, a tree and we're grafted into it as believers. And uh, how could we not love and accept the Jewish people in Israel? 
But once you look at the prophets, you have to look at what they said about Messiah. There were over 300 kind of stipulations on what Messiah is going to say and do and facts about him. The odds of any one person filling all 300 are astronomical beyond computation. A mathematician applying something called the laws of compound probability, and that's as you add stipulations, the odds of it increase dramatically. He took just eight prophecies, prophecies like uh, being born in Bethlehem, entering Jerusalem on a donkey, death by crucifixion, having a forerunner, and just eight prophecies calculated to 10 to the 28th power. That's a 10 with 28 zeros. That doesn't really mean anything to us to hear that. Here's an illustration. Maybe many of you have heard this. If you took the, tate, the state, I almost said the Tate, the Tate of Texas, the state of Texas, and you covered it two feet high in silver dollars, and then you took one single silver dollar and you marked it and you hid it somewhere in the state. And it's a big, anybody who's ever driven it knows how big it is. Um, and then you blindfolded a person, dropped them somewhere and said, wander around at random and pick one coin. The odds of their getting that one coin are the odds that one marked coin are the odds of one person fulfilling just these eight prophecies. Well, now questions came. They were very interested. They hadn't heard a lot of this. They said, why didn't we see that he was Messiah then? Did the prophets say that we would miss him? Yes, I said, the prophets did. I mentioned those verses from Isaiah. I mentioned that Zechariah had said it. I went to Isaiah chapter 53, the great prophecy clearly about the Messiah. And I quoted part of it. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. The rabbi then stood up and said, Isaiah 53 is a very difficult chapter. We stay away from it. I could see the faces of the people and I could see kind of the surprise. These were seekers. I'm, nothing was off limits. And then came the shocker question. One man said, well, if the prophet said we would miss him and we did, and yet Jesus fulfilled all these prophecies, that's a pretty good indication he is the Messiah. I never got to answer the question. The session was ended abruptly, not by me. And I was told, well, you know, we'll have Mr. Franco back sometime uh, and he can go into this further. Uh, decades later, I'm still waiting for that invitation. But there was the question. If all these things are there, how did we miss him? That question still confronts all of us. See, there are some belief systems, religious and secular, that take Jesus out of the equation. You know, I studied science and I was presented a view of how things were created and came to be that had nothing to do with God. I was told, you know, this was all happenstance and, and uh, I won't go into details on this, but there are systems that exclude Jesus right up front. They won't even let you look at it. But another reason is that Jesus presents us with moral claims about how we live. 
It's not that we can be good enough through our works. We can't. But faith in him requires us to change how we live because he becomes not only savior, but he also becomes Lord. And on his command, we view every human being differently because of it. We become servants to others. We no longer live to our own desires. We have been purchased with a price. And if he's Lord, then I have to obey what he says. The name of Jesus is still an offense in other ways. When I practiced law and did constitutional law and religious liberty, there was a line of cases for years on whether people could pray before public meetings. That would be like an invocation, uh, you know, somebody standing up before Congress or a state legislature or, you know, town or city council or something like that. And there were various groups bringing lawsuits saying you can never pray. It violates the Constitution. If you even pray in any way, they have to be totally, totally secular. And so we fought these cases through. And it was one thing, they were upset when you mentioned the name of God. But they melted down when the name of Jesus was mentioned. And it was interesting, mentioning any other religious figure was just a kind of like this. But the name of Jesus, it was like the clock stopped running. Once in a debate with an attorney, we were litigating a case, we were talking, and I asked him, well, could, could, if, if prayer is allowed, could you pray in the name of God? And he said, well, I don't, maybe not, because that would offend polytheists. So I said, okay, so then would the only acceptable prayer be something like, to whom it may concern? If any person or persons or being or beings happen to be listening, um, and, and he didn't understand that I was being sarcastic, which is my bad, but uh, he said something like this. Yes, that gets closer, but still never Jesus. Now, what would make him say something like that at the end? Because the name of Jesus is an offense. By the way, just so you know, about eight years ago, the Supreme Court actually cleared that up. The prayers were upheld. A state, town, city, Congress is allowed to have a neutral prayer policy where you pray, you invite people to pray in their own tradition. And yes, the name of Jesus can be mentioned, but it still remains an offense. A pastor friend from this church told me very recently, he went to a public event and prayed. And at the end of his prayer, he said something like this. I thank you that we live in a land that gives us freedoms and allows us to pray in our beliefs and traditions. And I thank you for that in the name of Jesus Christ. The prayer ended, somebody made a beeline right over to him, got in his face and said, that was the most offensive prayer I have ever heard. And it's not just in our nation. I spent a long time in India when I was young as I got a Rotary Club scholarship, which meant I went over there and you did speaking and you lived with Indian families. And uh, I had just become a Christian and we would go back to their homes at night and this was pre-internet and most of them did not have TV sets and they wanted to talk about faith. They told me a lot. I learned a lot about the Vedic writings and Hinduism and I talked about faith. The question I got every single place I went, 
And there's good answers to this. I'm sorry we don't have the time to talk more about it. But the question I got every single place was, why is Jesus exclusive? Why can't we just import him into the pantheon of Hindu gods and have him with all the others? Why do we have to neglect, why do we have to discard all the others if we come to him? See, Jesus is a stumbling stone not only because he confronts the truth that we're all sinners, but he is because he makes a claim of exclusivity. He tells us no one comes to the Father but by me. He tells us that he alone uniquely came from heaven and that as we sang earlier, he's the way, the truth, and the life. I have people ask me, are you saying he's the only way? I say, that's not me saying it. That's what Jesus said about himself. You consider the case for Jesus and you know, take up the issue with him. See, yes, he shows us a loving father that we all hope for, a God of great mercy, but also a God who's going to judge righteously. And he shows us that we only come to him by faith. And here's the sad part. We don't get partial credit for good works. C.S. Lewis also said one time, he said, people say they want a heavenly father. He said, I don't think so. When you consider all that a heaven, what a father requires, he said, I think they want something more like a heavenly grandfather who just wants all the kids to be spoiled and have a good time. And just having had two grandkids spend the night the other night, I can attest this is true. Anything goes at grandpa's house. That's just how it is. This brings us to point three, and this is how Paul now transitions these thoughts. God wants us to identify with our community and have a heart for it. Let me say that again. God wants us to identify with our community and have a heart for it. In chapter 10, verses one through four, we see Paul's heart on display. He's not angry with his people. He's heartbroken. He doesn't scold them. He sorrows the same way Jesus wept over Jerusalem. And he says to them, look, people may be zealous and sincere, but sincerely wrong. Back in chapter nine at verse three, Paul went so far as to say this. He said he wished that he could be accursed if that would work for the salvation of his people. And he used a very strong uh, Greek word, anathema, which means accursed in the sense you're cut off from God, you're lost. And he thought if, if, if that would be the price to get his people reconciled with God, he would have done it. Now that's not how God works those things, but you see his heart and you discover that's the heart that God has that we see in other people throughout the Bible. When God is angry at Israel and he's going to judge them for the golden calf, he basically says to Moses, stand aside. I'm going to wipe them all out and start over again with you. And Moses immediately says, Lord, forgive them. And if not, blot my name out of your book of remembrance instead. God responds, 
I'll forgive them. It, it wasn't, again, that Moses, that God would actually do that to Moses, but it was that heart that had such a desire and identification with those people that brought that. And the ultimate, what's the ultimate identification? Jesus identifying with us, identifying with lost humanity, coming and living among us and giving his life as a sacrifice for our sins. The Bible says, he, he, he became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness. You see this in uh, Acts chapter nine, verse three. <clears throat> no, pardon me, um, that's not what I meant to say. You see this in Acts chapter nine, um, verse four, that while Saul of Tarsus is on his way uh, to Damascus and he's going to become the apostle Paul, a light appears and a voice asks him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you? I am Jesus, whom you perse you're persecuting. Now, was Paul actually personally persecuting Jesus? Well, not in one sense. Jesus had already ascended into heaven. But Jesus so identified with his church that persecuting them was persecuting him. Saul, why do you persecute me? And we're called to identify as well with our culture around us, even in their sin. Huh? What does that mean? Well, you look at Daniel chapter nine, when Daniel is praying for Israel to be restored to the promised land, the 70 years of captivity are up. And Daniel continually prays this way, Lord, we have sinned. Lord, we have disobeyed your commandments. Had Daniel done that? No, Daniel was exemplary, but his heart was so identified with his people that even in that confession and that prayer, Daniel was identifying with them. What's our community? Who is it God wants us to identify with in that way? Yes, it's our nation. I mean, it's easy to look at the news and look at things happening and just throw your hands up and all that. God really does want us praying for it. Our nation, our state, our city, our town, but also our families, our communities, our neighbors, our, the people we work with. We're called to pray for them, to be quick to forgive, to love them, and to intercede for them. Now, does that desire come naturally I don't think so. I don't, it, it certainly did, does not to me. I don't have this instinctive reaction like Paul. I'm not eager to have my life cut off and accursed or, and all of that. But I have found this, that as I die to myself and I pray and I ask God to give me more of a heart for those people, he does it. I don't know how that happens. I can only tell you, it does not come naturally, but he'll give us that and show us things about that if we ask him. Paul ends up saying in chapter 10, verses three and four, that Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the end of the law. What does that mean? Boy, that statement has a lot packed into it. If, he's, if it's the end of the law, that means it's the end 
of working for God's approval. We no, have, we no longer have to be killing ourselves to figure out what we have to do to get God to smile at us. It's also the end of boasting. If there's no more law, we're not going to get there by doing enough. But I think this is an important part of it too, and we don't want to miss it. It's also the end of condemning ourselves. I find so many people in the church labor under this kind of self-condemnation and this guilt. We think about things we do or don't do as Christians. I think of things in my life that I just, I have a sense of shame to this day, you know, thinking of some things. It's the end of that. We don't have to measure up any longer to get on the nice list instead of the naughty list. As uh, Paul said earlier, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's really good news for us. It's good news for a lot of people here today. If we can take that in and believe it. I'll ask the worship team to come back up while I have a few closing thoughts. People are still stumbling over the person of Jesus. Yes, there are many people who still want him to be nothing more than a great teacher, someone who makes me happy, someone who gives me a sense that there's a God whose chief aim is to see that I get to do what I want to do and feel good about myself and that really there are no consequences. These are all incorrect views. Paul is showing us two problems in these verses here. He's saying there are two ways you can miss God. It's not only working it's all, or trying to achieve righteousness by works. It's also willful disobedience to God. Both are paths of self-will. Both are paths of how I am going to get to God or get reconciled or <clears throat> have whatever happen. See, that's not what God is calling for. He's calling for total, unconditional surrender. He's actually calling for us to die to ourselves. That's not a popular message in the world. But Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself, pick up your cross daily, and follow me. Don't let your mind skip over that middle one. The cross was an implement of torture and death. When Jesus says, pick up your cross daily, he's talking about a daily process of dying to ourselves, our old desires, our old way of thinking. Here's an amazing thing I found though. The longer I walk with Jesus, I find that the more I make that effort and I, I take those steps to die to myself, rather than dying, I somehow have more life. That as I die to myself, he gives me more joy. It's one of those paradoxes of the kingdom. In losing my life, I find more of my life. That's how God does it when he calls for this surrender. First Peter picks up the same theme and Peter says in First Peter 2, seven and eight, uh, talking about the stone of stumbling. He says, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone 
and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. It's got two functions now. The cornerstone was the critical part of a building back in those times. When you set the first stone, the cornerstone, it determined the direction that every rock was going to run. It determined where the entrance to a building would be. The size of it determined how high up the building could go based on the size of the stone. The cornerstone defined the whole building. And as we sang earlier, Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. But to those who don't believe, he becomes a rock of stumbling. So how do we see Jesus? How do we define our relationship with him? Again, verse three, Paul's going to say, people don't come to faith either because they lack knowledge or they try to do it by works or they fail to submit to the righteousness of God. There's a summary of everything that's happened. You could boil it down to two things. People reject God because they're either ignorant or they're willful. I think we all end up down on the ground somehow. The Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. I'm so grateful to God that I had the opportunity to do that, to bow my knee, to confess him as my Lord, my God, and my Savior. Some people may end up on the ground for a different reason. They may recognize who Jesus is too late. And instead of bowing, they stumble over a stone. Remember, Paul's burning desire was for his people. Paul would have, again, uh, given his own life if he could have, if that would have saved Israel. Isn't that an inspiration for us? It should be an inspiration, how, how God loved us so much and identified with us, a God who loves us so profoundly beyond any kind of human calculation or understanding, gave his son for us. How, how does that not motivate us to want to love others the same way, identify with them, and show them the truth of who Jesus is in our lives? I'm going to uh, just pray right now. And after I'm done praying, uh, the, the worship group will do one more song. While they're singing, I'd invite you up. There's a prayer team that comes up every week. If you're here, maybe you've never made it right with Jesus. Maybe you want to come up and make that decision and give your life to him. There'll, people, there'll be people up here waiting to pray with you. There'll be people at the information tables in the back. I'll be up here. I'd love to talk to you, get to meet you, learn more about you. Or even if you're just going through something, you feel like you've been wrestling. Maybe you've been wrestling with condemnation. Maybe you've been wrestling with guilt, a sense that you're not good enough for God. It doesn't seem it could really be true that God is that good. Don't be shy. Come up, pray with somebody here who loves you and wants to reach you, wants to help you reach God, I should say. And uh, it's not an easy thing, I know, to come up and pray. But if, if you feel moved to do that, there'll be people here while we're standing to worship. 
feel free, just come up. Okay, let's just pray here and I'll be back in a minute. Father, thank you again for the truth and the beauty of your word. That it is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Father, it pierces us. It shows us truth. It shows us who you are. And it shows us that we are accepted because of your grace and your mercy and your love. Father, we ask you that uh, we would not leave this place today the same way we came in. Father, touch our hearts. Show us what it is you want us to learn in this. Uh, Help us to apply the word to our hearts that becomes true and that it allows us to love you and worship you and serve you the way that you deserve. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Highlands, the prayer team will be up here for a while. If you feel led, come up. We'd love to pray with you and see you go. Let's be the face of Jesus Christ in our community and everywhere that he puts us. Blessings of the day to you in Jesus Christ.